Hey y'all, welcome to the last episode of the year. I feel like I have said this a lot of times this year, but we're going to do something a little different today. And actually, this might be the most different episode that has happened in 2023. So let's go! Today, I have two guests, and we're going to talk about a museum exhibit at the Museum of Boulder in Colorado. The exhibit is called Proclaiming Colorado's Black History. And yes, there are black people in Colorado. There have never been a whole lot of us, but that's kind of the problem. Because Colorado's black community is so small, Colorado's black history is often overlooked. But black Colorado history is American history and definitely worth telling. So this episode, we're going to talk about how the exhibit came to be, how other black communities can replicate this work, the oral history work behind it, and some of the stories inside the museum. Like I said, I have two guests today. So I'm here with Adrian Miller, who's a Colorado native, a soul food scholar, and the exhibit's lead curator. And I'm also here with Minister Glenda Strong Robinson, a minister, a historian at Second Baptist Church and the NAACP's Boulder Branch, a decades-long Colorado resident, and the oral history liaison for the exhibit. I want to start this episode at the beginning. How did Proclaiming Colorado's Black History come to be? First of all, thanks for having us on your podcast and giving us a platform to share this interesting exhibit that we've pulled together. That's Adrian Miller, the food guy. It all started with me opening my big mouth at a dinner party. I just said, you know, at some point, I want to write a story, uh, a history of African Americans in Colorado, because we've had a lot of next level people come to our state. And I just don't think people really know to the extent that African Americans have helped shape our state. So at that dinner party were several board members of the Museum of Boulder, and they huddled up and they said, hey, let's try to get a grant to create this exhibit to reflect what Adrian's talking about. They circled back to me and said, hey, would you want to be a part of this team to get this grant? And, you know, I I thought in my mind, there is no way that this small museum in Boulder is going to get a grant to talk about black history. And um, they got it. So that was the seed money to do this. And so it was very important to us to have community input. So we created an advisory council of people. Uh, I tell people all the time, share your dream. We're told often to keep things close to the vest. And I understand why people do that because they don't want their ideas stolen. But a lot of good things have happened to me because I've just been willing to share this dream that I had. Yes. Thank you, Adrian. And that's Minister Glenda. I went to the museum before any of this came about, and I looked around, and I may have seen four pictures of Black people. And yet, having been here for 43 years, I know that Black people are there, especially on Sunday morning, the largest community gathers at Second Baptist Church Boulder, and they have since January 7th, 1908. And I knew that history and I knew those people. Boulder had a uh, black mayor in, <laughs> in the person of Penfield Tate, the second. And I, I believe it was 1974. There are generations of Tates still there. So just looking back over this train of people and names, the Morrisons, George Morrison was a renowned musician from Boulder. I just, they, well, they made me the oral historian. And so I just started to gather information and know people. And, and those, 
the history is incredible. The dreams that they've had. People owned businesses here for all of that time. And so, yeah, the history is pretty incredible. In curating the exhibit, how did you decide what goes in, what to highlight? So I knew it'd be a horrible move if I by myself decided what should be in it. So what we did was we made it really important to have community input. We narrowed it down to 10 areas of interest, created a survey, and then we asked people to fill the survey out and pick top five. And so that survey went out to several hundred people, also went to our team and the advisory council. And from that, we narrowed down what the theme, the major themes of the exhibit would be. And what they decided was they wanted to hear how African-Americans built community in Colorado. They wanted to hear about civil rights and social justice, business and entrepreneurship, arts and entertainment, and then something we call Afrofuturism, which is a very malleable concept. But this idea of like the present reality is so infused with racism that often Black people have to imagine other realities where our humanity is fully accepted and affirmed. So um, that's, that's, those were the five major themes. And it was important to have something that would span time, right? We didn't want this to be too historic uh, because we want current generations to connect to the exhibit as well. And with the Afrofuturism thing, it's something that can be forward-looking because at the very end, we ask people, what kind of ancestry are you going to be to future Black Coloradans? Tell us about the oral history part of the project, Minister Glenda. Well, personally, for me, it's it's actually been life-changing. You know, I, as a matter of fact, when I did my oral, oral history, I was like, oh my goodness, I've never looked at my life in that span of time. And I've done lots of things. I, I was born and raised in a country, little country town in Memphis, Tennessee. Went to uh, black high schools. I mean, I'm of that age where I was in the segregated Jim Crow South, where even though Brown versus Board of Education was in the 54, 55, 56, no Southern states really honored that. And so I graduated from an all-Black school, went to an all-Black HBCU, thinking I was going to have the time of my life, and I did for one semester. And my dad came and said, I don't have any more money, and they're now taking coloreds at Memphis State University. You're going to have to go there for the spring semester. And so I had to leave Lane College in Jackson, Tennessee, with all my friends in the fall semester of 65 and transferred to a place where there were about 25,000 students and about maybe 50 Black people. As a matter of fact, I'll tell this story because the whole world knows it now, but I got an F in history at Memphis State University. Used to be ashamed to say that <laughs> in, in American history. The instructor said, the most you can get make in my class is a C. Why? Because I think all that colored people, even the biggest and the brightest, can only be average. So as a 19-year-old person, what am I, what am I going to do with that? Me and Willie Johnson were the only two blacks in that class of a, it was a, a kind of an auditorium class. So there were 55 students there. I was wishing that the floor would open up and I could just go through it. 
And so just navigating through that. Anyhow, Dr. King came, if you will recall, in 68 to Memphis on behalf of the sanitation workers. His last march, which I was in, March 28, 1968, that picture, the picture of me in the last memorial march, is on the wall of the Smithsonian African American Museum of History and Culture in D.C., as well as the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis. And? Oh, and at the Museum of Boulder in Boulder, Colorado. Thank you. So I say I am living history. So it's been exciting. Each of us has a story in, and they need to be told. From what I've seen, it's not just a museum exhibit. There's more than just what's within the walls of the museum. So tell me about the like many ways people can engage with the project. So it was really important that the exhibit lived beyond the walls because it's in a confined space and also because it's in Boulder. It's a sizable city in Colorado, but Denver and other places are bigger. So we knew not everybody was going to make it there. We um, have the oral histories, which we are going to make accessible. We also created a curriculum with the Boulder Valley School District, because again, we wanted present generations to connect to the exhibit. And we actually met with some students beforehand to ask them what they would love to see in an exhibit. We also have a group of artists who created murals throughout the city of Boulder that are connected to the exhibit. So you can see artwork. Uh, And then the the final piece there is that we seek to amplify others around the state who are connected to Black history. So they would be uh, encouraged to go visit other museums and support other organizations and see what they're doing to tell the stories of African-Americans in Colorado. The show has listeners all over the place, and they're definitely probably listeners from other small Black communities that have done mighty things in history. And I hear that you want this type of project to be something that could be replicated in other Black communities. So how would this expand? Well, I think uh, the main thing is that it takes resources. So every state has some kind of grant-making institution. Whether they, over time, have consistently funded Black efforts, that's a big question mark. But I think it takes some research to find out, well, what are the available resources where we could apply for a grant or some just something that can get us started? And then I think it's a matter of canvassing the Black organizations that exist in your community to say, hey, is this something that we can come together and do? Because a lot of times people are just operating in silos, and so they're off doing their own thing. And so this could easily become a collective effort. I think it's also identifying folks in the community who have a story to tell and not being elitist about who has a story to tell, being very open and encompassing about that. Then after all of those things are identified, it's just a matter of figuring out, okay, do we have the people power to make this happen? Because it's a it's a thing to pull together a museum and exhibit. And if, even if it doesn't exist in a physical space, it could be something that's created as an online exhibit. And then there's all kinds of possibilities there. And so I would say it's investigation. And then it's also just having a vision. And then really, frankly, just saying, can we pull this off and do it in a way that's compelling? Because the last thing you want to do is just throw something together 
that's not appealing, right? And and puts the the history in a bad light. You don't want to do that. So you want you want to do something that's compelling, and then hopefully spurs people to want to do more, and learn more. I also want to hear about the stories in the museum. I want to talk about Colorado history. Let's go. Let's talk about those first black folks who came to Colorado. So the way we start the exhibit, which I thought was a creative way to do it, is we tried to find the first no documented African-American child born in Colorado uh, or what would become Colorado. And then we had that person welcome you to the exhibit, a girl named Annabelle Riley. Her father came out with some Georgians who were mining prospectors. What a lot of people don't know is that there was a gold rush in Georgia. So a lot of Georgians came to Colorado in search of gold with the gold rush of 1859 and often brought enslaved or free black servants with them. And and telling her story, we connect it to the exhibit. So you get a preview of the themes of the exhibit through her life. She died uh, as a young mother, so we don't have a picture of her or anything like that, but still with our design team, we created a silhouette. So she welcomes you. And then we talk about the early arrivals and most of the early arrivals that we could find are people who are known. So a guy named James Beckworth, who came to this region as a fur trader, but eventually was in all kinds of stuff. And there are actually physical landmarks like Beckworth Pass in California. Um, He was associated with Pueblo, Colorado. So he was a well-known figure of the West. Then we have Clara Brown, who um, came out as a formerly enslaved woman, somebody who laundered clothes and then became quite wealthy. A lot of her clients were miners. And so she started buying mining claims and was quite wealthy, became a philanthropist at the end of her life. And then the other thing we talked about is that even though slavery was never legal in Colorado, we had enslaved people in Colorado. We just don't know the numbers because, you know, they weren't worthy of being documented in some people's opinions. But we do know of several enslaved people. As early as the 1840s, um, there was a military fort in southern Colorado called Bent's Fort. And there were three enslaved people there, um, Andrew, Dick, and Charlotte. Charlotte was the most famous of the three because she was the fort's cook. Her cooking prowess was so renowned that people came to the fort just for her food. So we talk about people like like them. And, and then we transition into building community. Tell her about Columbus Be Hill, what which you just did. You know, I'm the food guy. So I wanted to give a shout out to one culinary person, even though that wasn't a major theme. So there's a guy named Columbus B. Hill from um, Missouri who makes his way to Colorado in the 1870s. He was a chef and he worked as a chef, but then at some point he was doing barbecues and he did barbecues for thousands of people in Denver. July 4th, 1890, he did a barbecue for 25,000 people to commemorate the cornerstone of the state Capitol building being dedicated. And he, he did barbecues for thousands of people. So, um, through my advocacy, I got him inducted into the American Royal Barbecue Hall of Fame. And the reason why Columbus B. Hill, just despite what he accomplished, the reason why he's an interesting figure is unlike many African-American barbecue people of that time, he's illustrated, so we know what he looks like. He's quoted, and he's interviewed. And the interviews are all over, all over the place. In several interviews, he's speaking standard English. In other interviews, he's like right out of a minstrel show. So that just shows you the agenda of the person who was writing the article. He stands out from that time period um, where African-Americans definitely shaped barbecue, but few are named and, and celebrated in the way that he was. And his food was good enough to start a food riot. 
1898, Denver has something called the Stock Show. It's a big deal. And um, big people that raise livestock come here and all kinds of stuff happens. So in 1898, Denver wanted to put on a very good show so that we could keep it for years and years to come. So they decided to have a VIP barbecue. And it was supposed to be just for 3,000 people. But word got out in Denver, especially in some of the seedy neighborhoods, and 30,000 people showed up for this barbecue for 3,000. So uh, somebody thought they could chill out the crowd by giving out free beer. And you probably can guess the ending of the story. So like a food riot broke out. The mayor of Denver and the governor of Colorado got on a grandstand with a bullhorn trying to chill people out, telling them to relax. People started throwing food at them. And there was a full-on food riot, and this was played out nationally in headlines, and it's fully illustrated in the Denver Post. Like, the next day, the whole newspaper had a huge panoramic spread of people fighting. And what I love about it is, in the midst of this chaos, there's a they have a little corner picture of this dude just serenely eating his barbecue sandwich while everybody's fighting around him. And so, yeah, so it, it was just a, it was one of the most distinctive events in Colorado history. Minister Glenda, why don't you share some of your favorites? As you know, well, you may not know this, but University of Colorado Boulder has had great athletic programs over the years. We won the 1990s Orange Bowl. What I'm finding out now and, and what I found out is In 1963, there was a championship team. And in 1968, there was a Liberty Bowl championship team. In that 1968 Liberty Bowl, which was held in Memphis, my hometown, Eric Harris shares the story of them flying into Memphis to play in the Liberty Bowl. And they played Bama Alabama, the legendary Bear Bryant, all-white team, all-white players, all-white coaches, everything. CU's got some Black players and some Black assistant coaches, and they fly into Memphis. Now, this is 1968. What happened in 1968? Uh, I was there. Dr. King was killed. But Jim Crow laws simply said separate but equal. Everything was very much separate and very much unequal. So they fly into Memphis and they show up with these black players. They did not get invited to the receptions that was held for Bear Bryant and the Alabama team because they learned that they had some black players. So then they go to restaurants. They get to the restaurants and they try to go in Sorry, we don't serve coloreds here. The white players said, if they can't eat here, we're not going to eat here. Same with the hotels. If they can't stay here, we're not going to stay here. So that brought new meaning to CU has a fight song, and it is with shoulder to shoulder, fight, fight, fight. That brought new meaning to that. And these guys are in tears when they're telling this story because they're thinking about the time and thinking about how they were able to lock arms. Well, moral to the story, on that night of the Liberty Bowl, even though there were things being thrown on the field, there were shout outs of all kinds of obscene things. They beat Bama that night. Yeah, (laughs) go Buffs. That's when I say 
This is where Bear Bryant said, if you want to win some football games, you got to get yourself some players that look like them. And that began to open up the door for colleges all around the country to accept Black players. Yeah, so that's pretty historic. You'll have to listen to Estes Banks' story of being the in the 1963. Eric Harris's uh, story was 1968, and Estes Banks was in 1963, I believe, and he played 13 years in the NFL. He was being encouraged to not sign up as a Black player because he looks either Native American or Latino. And so he's, so while I was doing the oral history interview, he said, I had to say to them, my granddaddy was a Buffalo soldier. You asking me to be something that I'm not? I, I can't do that. So I appreciated him sharing that. Um, and it's, there's so many other stories and, and experiences. And now my list is growing. Tomorrow I have two interviews. This exists in this museum for the next two years, but I did have questions just about like how this work will carry on going forward. Well, as you as you pointed out, the exhibit's going to run for two years. Our hope is that we can find funding so that it can travel outside of Boulder and continue to go to communities. And what we would do, ideally, is that as it goes to a different community in Colorado, we would tailor the exhibit to highlight some folks in that community people and places uh, in that community. And then um, I'm hopeful that we can find ways to keep this, some of the stuff that we couldn't get to within the walls of the exhibit to have it live online. When someone goes to the museum and sees this exhibit and engages with this work, what are you hoping they get out of it? I want people to know Black folks are here. We've been here (laughs) and we will be here. And we ain't going nowhere. And all of this time, we've done incredible work. We have a unique, incredible history that will never die. And so we can't afford to let our stories die. We've got to keep telling them and encouraging the generations to come. I hope that people will just want to learn more, not treat it as a one-off and really be spurred to investigate more because there's plenty out there that we didn't even get to. And maybe if they're not in Colorado, they would start to do this in their own communities. One of the cool things about today is there's so many ways to be creative and to share your content with others. Like, you know, there's this podcast, you can write a book, you could create a comic book, you could do film shorts off your phone. There's so many ways to get this story out. So I I really hope that people will be spurred to just do more. Thank you. Thank you both so much for coming on my show. I'll link the exhibit's website in the show notes. You can listen to some of the oral history stuff from there. There won't be a new episode in January, but I'll catch y'all next year. Thanks for listening. All power to all people, y'all.